Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping product managers become product masters. Listen and get ready to take your career to the next level for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders and managers make their move to product masters, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create products customers love. Do you participate in launch planning or what may also be called go-to-market planning? In some organizations, product managers are directly involved, but not always, and that is actually a waste. You'll hear why in this discussion, along with six elements addressed by a go-to-market strategy. Those are defining the target market, crafting a compelling reason for customers to buy, part of that is your value proposition, determining the pricing strategy for the product, crafting the positioning, the marketing communications, as well as conducting competitive analysis, and then finally, preparing for the actual launch. Discussing go-to-market strategy is a repeat guest for us. That's Mike Smart. He is a product manager, practitioner, and founder of Egress Solutions, a company that helps implement product management best practices that build and launch successful products. And I also love that name, Mike Smart. Who doesn't want to work with someone named Mike Smart? To see a written summary of our discussion, please go to theeverydayinnovator.com slash 204. This is a really important discussion. I think you're going to enjoy it. Mike, thank you for joining the Everyday Innovators. Thank you for asking me to join. I'm always pleased to chat with you and pick up topics about product management that we both get passionate about. Yes, we do. Uh, we tend to think of things in a similar way. And one reason why I like talking to you. And we talked last time in episode 148. And that was about practical actions for conducting win-loss analysis. So I would certainly stir people back to that if they want to hear you on that topic. And another topic, that was great because we hadn't covered that much. And this topic we haven't covered much either, which is a go-to-market strategy. And also very practical when I get into that. Let's just orientate all of us to kind of be thinking about the same same activity in the life cycle of you know taking an idea, turning it into a product, getting it out to the marketplace. Where does go-to-market strategy fit in? When you think about that life cycle we talk about? Yeah. Well, I can talk about this from two points of view. There's, I think, conventional view and something we see a lot when we run into clients, which is that it's multidimensional. There is a conventional view that says this belongs inside the sales channel distribution marketing side of the organization. And that it is something that starts um, post-concept, post-ideation, mm-hmm. and it, it picks up later. Um, in some organizations, I think they have really strong practices. I've seen them pick this up and run with it in that way, and they get very effective. What tends to happen with a lot of companies, especially which is the sweet spot where we work in the mid-market, mm-hmm. is this is the piece of strategy that keeps getting pushed down the road, so to speak. So Mm -hmm. as the life cycle continues, the hard, fuzzy questions around go-to-market seem to not get addressed until the product is almost built. And so there are places where it, it, it obviously the product gets built, it doesn't get sold, you don't get the engagement. And so there's a lot of things that we see that happen as a result of that in the problem space. So our view of this is that this belongs 
in the early stages of the product and, and as early as possible when we're formulating the problem that we're trying to solve, when we're formulating the user that we're going to solve the problem for, when we're formulating the construct of mm-hmm. the buyer or the persona that's going to buy this from us, that's when we should start thinking about go-to-market. And it starts really specifically and driven around going back to the customer, um, targeting that customer. Um, The go-to-market becomes part of the customer discovery process. So while we're engaging with those target customers, whether we're interacting with them direct, interviewing them, showing them mock-ups, we are staging the ground for a go-to-market element and a go-to-market piece of the practice. We are hopefully taking notes. We are hopefully formulating our thoughts about how are we going to facilitate them buying this Mm -hmm. at the various early stages of this. The aspects of that about moving it more forward in the process from, you know, ideation product concept, we learn a lot about how to position a product when it is launched from those early engagements with customers when we understand the problem better, what language they use talking about the problem and then using that, hopefully wisely, into the marketing materials. And too often, there's like some huge disconnect, right? We, we get the product done, we throw it over to marketing or whoever's responsible for the marketing communications, and we lose all that goodness that we had in the beginning that helped us know which product to make. Yes. And now marketing kind of has to make it up from there, and there's a lot of wealth of information that we had. So bringing it in earlier is very wise. I should have asked, I, I guess... Not every one of us might be on the same page about what just a go-to-market strategy is. So what does this thing do for us? It's one of those things, and I, I think I recently did a blog post, and one of the members of the team, we, we were both paralleling this. Hmm. But it's one of those things that we talk about so much, and I use an analogy. It's like a sport like baseball, or if you're outside of the United States and the UK, it's a sport like cricket. We grow up with it. We talk about it. We talk about go-to-market so much that everybody thinks they know what it is. Um, And in reality, one of the things that we have to do, to your point, and I don't mean to answer your question with a pivot question, but we do have to decide what go-to-market means to us in our specific business. Mm -hmm. There's some broad sweeping things. I mean, go-to-market is, at the end of the day, it is something that we measure and care about because it defines the ultimate success of the product that we created. It is metric-driven. We care about penetration. We care about market share. We care about margins on the product. We care about sales volume. We care about our win-loss rate or our conversion rate. We care about our competitive positioning in the market. And all of those things, those those metrics, if you will, those measures are a result of a very good um, or very strong go-to-market strategy. Mm-hmm. It, it, the more of those things we pull into this environment up front, the more we make it a strategic effort, the more likelihood is we'll get really good metrics on the back end. Mm-hmm. And so I, I say to any company looking at this, there are some things that you want to look at, specifically target customer. You want to measure and look at the, what's the compelling reason to buy. You want to fold in and you have to bring in the pricing in it, which basically feeds the value proposition. It's a, The pricing becomes a mechanism of gauging how strong the value proposition is. To your point earlier um, about positioning, we want to feed the positioning mm-hmm. mechanism into this. And then we obviously want to do a competitive assessment. And then we want to do the things, the events, the efforts that we call launch, which are all of the public facing, all of the activities that we do to make sure that people, our buyers, our community, our competitors know that we're there with something that's new, compelling, engaging, and they should take a look at it. Right. And the elements that lead up to that, the the the, the, the work that leads up to that is all of the things we talked about, customer segmentation, 
compelling reason to buy, the pricing strategy, the competition, or the competitive assessment. And then we launch with those things that we've learned and understood and packaged in a way that give us the best position to succeed with the product in the marketplace. Good. I expect some organizations think about this in terms of launch planning. Some think of it in terms of go-to-market strategy. I think those are the kind of things we're talking about is how do we get our product positioned properly to the market for it to be successful. Yes. And everything that you just went through involved in that. Okay, that's good. That's, that's a good baseline for us. When we are creating this strategy, who do we want involved? There's a school of thought that says this should be top-down. In mm-hmm. other words, there should be visibility and concern and care and skin in the game stakeholders at the executive level of the company because it is that critical. In addition to that, it's easier to do that if there is some common understanding that, that this is that important because there are multiple departments or functions that need to be involved. So if the strategy set for go-to-market sits at the, and I hate to use this word, but I'm going to say it anyway, the C-suite, so to Mm -hmm. speak, Um, but that executive level with the people that have the broadest view of the organizational success and have that at at the center of what their objective is, then it makes it easier to engage with this highly collaborative, multi-dimensional, multi-departmental function that goes forward. And so you need to have, obviously, product management involved. You need to have, if you have this role, product marketing involved. You need to have the demand gen or the classic marketing role involved or marketing communications, if you want to use an old school term. You need to have the the branding part of the business, wherever these functions sit. You absolutely have to have sales engaged in this because they own the execution. Mm -hmm. When we measure go-to-market, we're starting to first look at sales velocity and sales success. And then depending upon the product and depending upon how it sits, functions like newer functions, especially when you think about cloud-based technology being deployed, functions like customer success have a vital role in this. Functions like if you're still living in the world of implementation, functions like professional services have a role in this. Mm -hmm. And so you're talking about affecting many, many parts of an organization. And not unlike the product management role that crosses over those functions for whatever organization we're in, right? That we we have those different functions. So product managers are probably already familiar with the people involved in these aspects. Yes. And, and, you know, to be fair, this might be someone else in the organization that is running with the go-to-market strategy, the product management is influencing and responsible for providing information to. And I think the more involvement we can have the earlier with that, the more successful our product is likely to be. Yes. Uh, just, just keeping that alignment all the way through the development process, right? Having real good role clarity on this, I think, is as important maybe even more important than getting role clarity around building the product. Mm -hmm. We seem to have evolved to a place as organizations to have decent to outstanding role clarity about who's going to do what in a building process. This is one of the areas where I think it's still relatively fuzzy because it, this has nuance to it. Where does product management start and stop in this process? What is it they're accountable for? Where does marketing pick up? who owns the pricing mechanism. Mm -hmm. And in some companies, as you point to, product management will span this. But most importantly, in some companies, product management will not be running this part of the the process. They won't be the quote-unquote quarterback in this. They will be a participant. They'll be a vital role, but they're not going to drive it. And some other organizations, for lack of anything else, product management gets handed this. And that creates another dynamic that has to be understood. Yeah. I don't know how this actually happens at Amazon. I'd be curious because 
uh, we've, we've raised this before as an example on the podcast, that product managers there, they're required to write that press release before they even really have a well-defined product concept, you know, very mm-hmm. early in the process. So they, they have a very document-written, driven approach to product management. And what I like about that idea is you have to think as a product manager, kind of beginning to think through, how is this product going to hit the market? From the very beginning, that does shape a lot of what you do. Yes. I'm a big believer in that practice. I know Amazon does it. Microsoft has done it. I don't know if they still do, but they did it years ago. When we work with clients, we encourage, if the, especially if they're struggling with this part, get the core team that's designing the product to sit down and write that press release. Mm-hmm. Um, it then sends signals to everyone engaged, including development, this is the aspiration. Right. Now, where we end up in relationship, the aspiration may change. That's okay. Mm-hmm. But if we have the aspirational goal out there up, up front, and, it, and if it's broad as it needs to be with a press release, it creates a signal call to sales, to marketing, to customer success, and everyone else is going to need to be involved later that you own a piece of this. You have some skin in the game. We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute. This episode of The Everyday Innovator is brought to you by Product Innovation Educators, your one place for online training to make the move from product manager to product master. When you enroll in one of our online courses, it's like having Chad McAllister as your personal coach. In each course, you get video lessons, added resources, and a private community for collaboration with other product managers and innovators. And, of course, you get direct access to Chad, who will answer your questions and get you heading in the right direction. Past students tell us the concepts, practices, and tools are valuable, but the real benefits they gain are being more confident, increasing their influence in their organization, and generating greater success for themselves and their company. There are four levels of training to become a product master. Find your level now. Get started by going to TheEverydayInnovator.com forward slash master. Your one place to become a product master. TheEverydayInnovator.com forward slash master. Don't wait. Get started now. So I want to get into details about how we construct a go-to-market strategy and at least be aware of that and whatever our role is that fits into that. You know, what are the elements that make up a go-to-market strategy? Where, where do we start with this? Well, I talked about them before. I, I, I liken this to the six-point, I call it a six-point um, strategy for go-to-market. Mm-hmm. It, is, it starts out with targeting customers. So mm-hmm. some of this work will have happened, we hope, we believe in good practice, prior to even solidifying what we're going to build is targeting a customer and a set of problems mm-hmm. and then providing a mechanism for what are the, if we identify the target segment and we identify the problems that we're trying to solve for them, we extract those from our customer base or our target segment, then what are the, what are the things that are going to make them buy from us? What are the compelling reasons to buy? That's core of the value proposition. Mm-hmm. What, what problem do we solve and why do we solve it better than or why is our approach better than anyone else's? Um, from that, we believe you go to work because you're working with the value proposition and you can extrapolate from the value proposition the value of the solution. We believe you go to work on, on in parallel with the, the mock 
mockups and the prototypes to go to work on the pricing strategy. Hmm. Is this a loss leader? Is this a premium product? Is this a, a, a price like everyone else? And then start to formulate, not necessarily get down to the fine tuning of the numbers, but thinking strategically about what role is pricing going to play in this and how are we going to bring this forward? From that, and again, you move to positioning, um, the classic positioning exercise and de- deriving the architecture that's going to come from this. And then we believe at this point, a flash competitive assessment. Who Now that we've got target segment, compelling reason to buy that we believe is differentiated, uh, a, a qua- an equation around price and value and some mm-hmm. solid positioning, who else in the marketplace has comparable products or a substitution? And so we have to do that work as we move through this. And the sooner we do that, the better. And then the last piece of this, once we do the competitive assessment, is then start preparing for the actual launch effort and activity. We also believe that this changes depending upon where we're, who our buyers are or what sector the market we're selling to. So if you think about the technology adoption curve, early stage buyers or visionary buyers through um, laggards or, or companies or buyers that are slow to adapt. We believe that the essence of these things will change if you go from a visionary buyer whom has a different motivation than a practical or a pragmatic buyer. So if we're doing this work for a visionary buyer, one of the things that we know about visionary buyers is that they will be gain motivated. That early stage buyer, and there are many people, many organizations and many buyers out there that want to be the first one. Mm-hmm. They are going to want to do this for a different set of reasons than the one that's going to come later, the mainstream buyer. Right. Um, they're looking for opportunities. They're looking for gain. They're looking for positioning. Um, not as important to them that you prove that this has worked 50 or 100 times. They're also the compelling reason to buy for them will be different. Right. They're looking for competitive advantage for their organization, which translates to that they're actually willing to pay a premium, right? The classic early adopter will pay a price premium over other buyers simply because they're going to get the gain that they're after and a competitive advantage. There's something about that buyer in that visionary stage or that visionary buyer that also likes the idea of being on the lead, right. the technology leadership. And then in this context, we as the provider of this are really not trying to sell them features. We're really trying to sell them the concept of a category. In other words, our solution is unique because it sits in a category that's separate and apart from other capabilities and other substitutions around us. And that's the best way to compete with the existing competitors if we're new in the space, or if we're even an existing competitor to understand the differentiation between us as a category, not at the feature level versus other players. And then the launch cat, the launch process is a theme that we're launching in a new space, a new category. So if our visionary buyer is the primary sector we're going after, those are the kind of things that we need to fill out in a rubric, if you will. If it's a business buyer or a pragmatic buyer, um, they're going to be pain motivated. Hmm. They're going to want to fix broken business processes. Pricing for them is going to need to be very competitive. They're going to want to look at what we charge versus someone else. Most of those business buyers understand the notion of examining costs in a full cycle, but they are going to be sensitive to what our solution costs versus others. Um, You're going to be selling and hear something that's probably a niche market. It's not about technology. It's about where we sit within this capability. And yes, I want to lead the field in this. I want to be the first one. And then when we look at competition, it's going to be capabilities. 
Do you have 10 capabilities to a competitor's seven? Do your three extra capabilities have compelling things about them that make them truly unique? And then when we launch, it is the feature drivers that are going to make the launch happen. Um, the third area would be a technical buyer, very similar to a business mm-hmm. buyer, with a couple of exceptions. They are going to be pain-motivated. Um, they're going to want to look at this as a practical approach. They're looking to solve problems for the enterprise, but they're also infrastructure. So they're looking at a long-term purchase cycle. The classic technology buyer is looking to add elements to round out existing infrastructure. What that means is you've got to have a high degree of integration, a high degree of ability to absorb and exist inside existing infrastructure. Again, pricing is going to be competitive and probably more competitive with the business buyer because they're comparing things at a much very, very feature-driven level and capability level. And they're also looking at how much it's going to cost them to acquire the solution and not just your price, but the actual acquisition cost for them. They want market leadership. They're going to look at company in terms of competition. So it's, does this company A have strength over company B? And then obviously the launch capabilities are going to follow that as well. So launch seemingly comes back to following form and function around competitive assessment, competitive landscape, that our launch themes should basically drive the competitive strategy or competitive set that we have. I I hope that answers the, the, the question in some detail. That and more so. So lots of really good information there about the steps, right? The elements that are involved and kind of a, a sequence that we go through and putting them in the context of the, the first element was the who's the target customer and recognizing that we need, need to align that with the lifecycle management phases of customers too. And one of the things that can, I used to make this mistake, frankly, uh, when we look at the lifecycle where our product is entering an existing lifecycle in the marketplace, Right. If, if we are fortunate enough to be creating a new category, we have early adopters right. and, and we need a position differently. And what you just went through, all those elements, those would be steered towards our early adopters because that's where we are right now. That's right. If we're entering a category that is mature and our product is going to be seen as one of several options, it's not standing out as a disruptor, it's not radical, you know, new approach, then we need to have a go-to-market strategy that positions us for that mature buyer and differentiates why do they care? What's our unique value within that set of mature buyers that says, oh, you know, we're better than all the other options because of this thing that you're not getting yet. The, the example I saw recently, I don't know if you've seen this, Instapot. No, I haven't. We bought an Instapot. Uh, we did this road trip to the Northeast and we thought, okay, we'll take an Instapot with us. That might be a good way to cook. And that was new to us. And we liked the Instapot a lot because you can cook chicken in like 10 minutes uh, after it warms up and all this. It's just an amazing little thing. But it doesn't make anything crispy. Hmm. And anyone that cooks is Instapot is, has been a kind of this big new n- new thing out there. And I just saw this ad recently, and it positioned it so well because it addresses the main pain point, which is we are Instapot that also make makes your food crispy. It addresses that one thing that get added on. And I thought that was really good positioning to stand out why you would want it. And now, obviously, I want it because I recognize that that's a unmet need of this cool thing that was revolutionary that isn't anymore. I'm familiar with that that idea, and I when you said Instapot, I'm thinking pressure cooker. And yeah, I guess exactly. It, 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 you know, yeah. so we went from the crock pot, crock, crock pot, slow cooker, added pressure cooking to it, and now it's an Instapot. Yes. Excellent. <laughs> Yeah, but but this issue of, of positioning against the competition as we go through this, I found it interesting too as you went through that. You know, we're starting with our target customer, right? And 
in there, and very important to recognize where are we in the life cycle, which was stage are we with the early adopter? I'll, I'll share another food product example. Yeah. It triggered for me because um, I am a griller. I love mm-hmm. to grill. I have three grills in my backyard. At, at, awesome. That's embarrassing. It's not awesome. <laughs> it's only embarrassing that you don't have four yet. <laughs> I, I just enjoy it. And there's always a new gadget a new thing out there that I mine doesn't have. So I need to go get another one. Mm -hmm. So I, I last year I wanted to fry a Turkey. People have been raving about this for years. Um, I have friends that have done it and I've watched them and I've kind of looked at it. And then I started going to, I went to YouTube to find how to do this. And I saw three videos and the second video turned me off to it. It was the exploding Turkey that went into the vat that was too cold. And I said, okay, I can picture myself being that person who doesn't let the Turkey get at the right temperature. So I started looking online. I found something very similar to your idea of Instapot, which was a Turkey fryer and it used infrared frying. That's great branding. And I won't give you the brand name of the product, but what it allowed you to do and its positioning was fry a bird without the mess in the cleanup and the danger. Uh, pain point. Pain point. Exactly. I'm a mature buyer. This is a mature marketplace. And for $100, they shipped this thing to me. I got on the phone with me and showed me how to prepare it. And as a warm-up for, for Thanksgiving, I cooked a chicken, just a very large chicken, just to see what it would be like. And I explained to my friends, I actually ate the whole bird. It was that (laughs) over the course of a day, I ate an entire chicken. But the the fact is that this is somebody who's done a lot of investigation, a lot of homework. It probably failed on the launch. It should have gone with a big splash. I became one of their advocates. I convinced Mm -hmm. 10 of my friends to buy this. I said, you can't go wrong. And then you don't have to deal with the cleanup of the five bucket gallon, five gallon bucket of oil afterward. Right. Um, Clearly a place where a pain point, a broken process, um, a niche sort of idea for the person that's obsessed like me with grilling. And then the feature difference is no cleanup, no danger, same product result. It's a perfect example of how to go to market differently. Yep. Yeah, and create that differentiation. That's really good. And I can imagine, you know, if we're, we're on that product team sitting around helping to think about how are we going to position this in six words or less, right? So something that's going to catch attention. And we would be going through the benefits of this, right? Okay, you don't have to buy oil. It's going to save you money. Yep. You don't have to figure out what to do with the oil afterwards because it goes rancid in, in you know a few weeks. That's a problem. You don't have any of the dangers. We're not going to be burning down garages when people try to do this in their garage and it's a big mess. Right. You don't have any of the setup time, probably, I guess. Not really. And we would think of all these things, and we would probably be staring at each other going, okay, what do we lead with? And the what do we lead with is back to know the customer's problem, and how do they talk about it? If we went and interviewed eight people with turkey fryers who had gone through this. What do you like about it? What don't you like? We yes. would probably hear the thing that stands out to all of them. Absolutely. Right? And it's like, okay, that's our lead. Good. And then we come up with the technology, and it's basically, here's the example. In this case... This is very old technology using convection to create mm-hmm. the solution right. to the problem, to get to the crispiness, which is right. what triggered your point about the Instapot and I being crispy. This is something that's using old technology, convection, mm-hmm. to get the outside of the burb crispy the way everybody likes it. So interesting. Exactly. My quick uh, experience with that, I did the turkey fryer one year, right, and went through all that. And it was a very good bird and a lot of mess. 
And the next year, we had a new convection oven in the house and thought, I'm just going to see what that's like. Just as good. Mm -hmm. And it was so much simpler. Put it in the convection oven. I was happy. Yes. (laughs) So the one other thing that came up as you talked through this was the competitive analysis was late in the stage. It sounds like if we were doing this as a process along with product development, the competitive analysis is coming up as we're developing the product, right? Making it real. Right. And I really like that personally. You know, some people have the approach that we get our ideas for new products or product enhancements by doing competitive analysis, and that's what we lead with. I think that results in more me too sort of products and that we better be leading with understanding our unmet needs of our customers and our competitors aren't going to tell us that. We see that all of the time, that people, companies, organizations who are pivoting off of competition, and it's, it's an obvious growth place to get to. Mm-hmm. The product, the, the marketplace starts to mature. There are not two players now with options. There's six. Um, we're after incremental market share. So we intuit, we lo- use logic and say, well, if we can pick off one of these players or some of the features of one of these players, we will gain entry. We will do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we find and what we've seen is a lot of, because of just the cycle time, when they release their new capability, the competitor is right there with them. Right. And so they end up in this death spiral of just matching feature for feature forever. And then it reverts to a price war, right? Mm-hmm. The only way that the buyer now can have any way of discerning between these is how much is the acquisition cost for me? Right. It's almost as if they're pushing this activity, almost pushes the sector into a commodity space. Once, once five players or three players show up with feature comparison that is minuscule, the only thing that I as a buyer can do is saying, if one's $110 and it's the same thing as the one that's $90, which one am I buying? It, it is the key reason why I'm such a fan of ethnography doing those user observation studies, because we often find unmet needs when we actually see how people are using the product. And that, that's just golden. And, and there's good examples out there of commodity products that had unmet needs, no one was addressing, and someone creates the you know now the lead, the category leader because they took the time to do the research. Well, your use case for the Instapot for a road trip mm-hmm. probably not part of the original use case, right? But there's an applicable example of that, which is also a little bit different than if I buy an Instapot for my kitchen and plug it in and leave it there when I want to take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. And so there are a set of features that would make sense for someone on a road trip that mm-hmm. might be additive or differentiated. And I don't know exactly what they are at the moment, but I'm, I can think of some things, um, a, a more substantive base because you may be setting it up in a, if you're in a, in a, in a, in an RV or some kind of moving yeah. vehicle, you may be setting up, it may need some safety bracing or something like that, or something that happens faster. The coil heats up faster and prepares food faster just because the compressed time of just being on the road and not having it be able to sit down and take all day to prepare a meal. Yeah. I mean, there are little things that you can right. start to play out to target the doing, using the idea of ethnography, targeting that specific sector and saying for this particular use case, you know what? These features matter. And also, it starts to affect your go-to-market. Do you go mm-hmm. into a major department store to offer that? Or ca- camping world, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. You put that at Bass Outlet, and then suddenly now it's a product in and of its own. Right. No new capabilities, no new technology. You've just figured out a use case specific to a set of buyers, and you're selling it in a place where that buyer goes to solve those kind of problems. That's right. Yeah, just, just reframing it for a new market. You, Chad, you and I are now describing what that strategy is in working time, mm-hmm. right? This right. is what go-to-market is. It's 
this thinking and this process of applying use cases, and it's de-emphasizing product technology. It's de-emphasizing product features specifically and more filtering it around use case, ethnography of the buyer, um, the kinds of things that absolutely will drive a product to be successful. Really good information. So I, I like the clear six elements. Yes. They parallel much of what we do as product managers, right? That know our customer, know the problem, and then think about things we have to get ready to, you know, for launching the clear value proposition, what the pricing strategy is. Yes. Bringing in the right people to help with us. All really helpful to and go to market strategy and that launch preparation. And as listeners know, I love me an innovation quote. Mike, what do you have for us and why did you choose that? So my innovation quote in business, maintaining status quo is death. Hmm. And I don't know who, it, who that is attributed to, but it's almost, it's, it's the inverse of the, the, the it, it's a, it's a, it is kind of a negative quote, but it is kind of a, a, a mantra that says change slash innovation is what breathes life into a company. And that's really why I right. chose it. Because especially with companies as they become more successful, especially as companies become larger in scale, the na- the main the emphasis on maintaining things that they are be- can become sort of the unspoken mantra of the organization. And what I would like to say is that innovation inspired, innovation inbred is really what breathes life into an organization. And we see that. I mean, we see that in some very large companies who are innovating all the time, and we certainly see it in small companies. There is this notion that if the organization isn't growing, it's dying, right? And that growth is all that matters. Yes. And I, I think there's more people in the workplace now that kind of actually rebel against that. Like, you know, we got a good thing going here. Why, why? It doesn't need to grow. But at the same time, we know that things are changing around us. Right. This quote kind of captures that better, right? That if we just maintain the status quo, that that's not going to work for very long because things are changing around us. Things are changing. Our customers' needs are changing. Yeah, there's nothing static out here in, in, in the business world for us. Right. Good. Thanks for sharing that. Thanks for sharing the information on go-to-market strategy. Uh, how can people find out about the work that you're doing? I want to make sure I put links to your resources in in the show notes for this. So certainly go to egressolutions.net. We blog heavily about once a week now. Um, and so we're out there in the blogosphere, either in LinkedIn or on Twitter. We're blogging hashtags, product strategy, uh, mm. product management, go to market. Um, so we're, we're active in that space. But those would probably be the main things. Um, we run a LinkedIn group called Product Management 2.0. Um, we have for some time. Um, those would be the places that I would say that um, people can certainly find us. And it's product management 2.0 inside LinkedIn. Okay. And I will put the links in the show notes to those things and make it easy for people to find the good resources. Again, that was egresssolutions.net. Yes. Main website. Okay. All right. Mike, thanks for the time and the information. Thank you very much, Chad. Always a pleasure. Thanks again for listening to The Everyday Innovator, where product leaders and managers make their move to product masters learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create products customers love. Find the written notes of the discussion with Mike at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 204. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit our blog at theeverydayinnovator.com.